Welcome to ING's Think Aloud, where we try to make sense of the world in the most unbanky way we can. In today's episode... The COVID-19 pandemic and measures to contain the spread of the virus have caused an unprecedented contraction of economic activity in the euro area. The primary common interest is to reduce the fragmentation stemming from the present crisis and divergence in the longer run. Faced with an extraordinary challenge, Europe needs an extraordinary response. So says ECB President Christine Lagarde, who warns that the region is in danger of splintering without a joint effort to save all its members. But while some progress has been made, it's clear that countries in Southern Europe will find it much more difficult to emerge from the crisis than countries in the North. I'm Rebecca Byrne, and I'm joined by ING's senior Eurozone economist, Bert Kalein, to discuss his new report, which examines this asymmetric recovery and the long-term problems this could create. But the pace of the recovery and the amount of lasting damage seems to depend on the severity of the lockdown. So which countries across the Eurozone have been hit the most? Well, in Europe, the COVID crisis started in Italy. The outbreak was first most severe uh, in Lombardy, which also means that Italy was the first country to go into a lockdown, uh, which was quite uh, a severe lockdown in its own. Together with that, we saw that countries like Spain and France opted for strict lockdowns, whereas countries in, uh, in Northern Europe, like the Netherlands and Germany, have opted for a relatively mild version of it. Um, and as we see, GDP in the first quarter was pretty much related how fast it contracted to how uh, severe the lockdown was. We put a lot of emphasis on the lockdown and its impact on the economy. Right. But it's not just about the lockdown, is it? It's also about the social safety nets that are in place, which don't seem to be as generous in the South. No, that's right. So in, in Europe, you see a lot of differences in terms of social safety nets. And in general, uh, the stereotype is that all of Europe is very lush in terms of social safety nets, of course. Uh, but when you look between countries, you see that there are very large differences. Automatic stabilizers, which is sort of the wonky term for the social safety nets in general, are considered to be even weaker in Spain than they are in the United States, for example. And you see that the Baltic countries in general have relatively weak social safety nets in place. And below average for all of Europe, you see that Italy also ranks below average, for example, whereas countries like France, Germany, uh, Netherlands, Austria have all pretty strong safety nets in, uh, in place, which are just, just there through government regulation. So there doesn't need to be any emergency spending or emergency packages put into place for this specific crisis for those safety nets to already buffer a fair bit of the economic shock in terms of income for households. Right. But obviously countries did put in place emergency spending plans as well. But what I thought was interesting in the report was that you say there's no clear correlation between how hard the economy has been hit and the size of those plans. Yeah, that's right. So what we see is that on top of those social that we were just discussing. Of course, countries have been announcing a lot of uh, government spending plans that are specific to tackle this COVID crisis. And essentially, a lot of it happened very quickly after the lockdown started, as governments realized that a 
mandatory shutdown of an economy is going to require government spending to help companies and families that have been hurt by this. And the types of spending have been relatively similar across Europe. So you can see, and that's actually not just for Europe, it's the case, it's for all advanced economies, you see that there have been schemes into place that incentivize companies to keep people on unemployment. Um, you see that there is some sort of funding for households, income support for households. You see that there have been tax forbearances and uh, loans and guarantees for companies. Um, in total, those are sort of the, the big spending plans that have been announced by countries. But the size of those packages differs enormously, especially if you look at the direct fiscal injection. So uh, anything that will immediately have a, an impact on the economy that will immediately be traced back into GDP. There you see that countries like Netherlands and Germany have come up with quite sizable packages. Um, in the Netherlands, we're now at about 4.4% of GDP in terms of direct fiscal spending, which is happening in uh, uh, over the course of only six months. In Germany, uh, that amount is even higher as there was already an ambitious plan announced in March, but now Germany has also announced a big recovery fund to, uh, to help go through the recovery phase um, moving out of the lockdown. These are lush spending plans, and you can see that that's bigger than what's been announced in countries like Italy and Spain, which are countries that have been hit harder by this crisis. Um, so therefore, you can assume that these countries are more at risk of having some lasting damage and therefore also a weaker recovery out of the lockdown phase as the economy uh, has less support from the government. And that's an interesting thing to note and adds to the risk that these countries have uh, of a weaker recovery. All right. Another factor which will affect the speed of the recovery is the structure of the economy, isn't it, in terms of which sectors dominate and also whether countries are more reliant on small businesses? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and here you see that it's, you know, every crisis is different. And um, we saw that if we look back at 2018, or especially 2019, uh, we were all very focused on on a possible trade war, um, which sounds so long ago now that that was the main area of, uh, of concern in terms of the economy. Now, if that were to have become a bigger crisis and have turned into a recession, then that would have definitely had more of a negative impact on countries in Northern Europe that are more trade dependent. What we see now is that the structure of the economy is actually uh, working in favor of northern European economies because they're less dependent on things like tourism, for example. Tourism makes up a very sizable amount of the economy for countries like uh, Italy and Spain, Portugal as well, Greece, of course. So that means that, as we can all imagine, that the reopening uh, of the economy comes with a relative reluctance for tourism to return that it will be difficult for these economies to uh, to bounce back as quickly as countries that are more reliant on, for example, manufacturing, that at some point, if uh, factories have been adjusted to social distancing properly, could start to uh, to function at a, at a relatively quick, um, uh, quick pace again. But it's not just that. We're also looking at small businesses. It's more tricky for small businesses to move through a period of no revenues at all, as uh, small businesses generally have smaller financial buffers to rely on. So countries that have a lot of small businesses or depend a lot on, on small business activity could therefore um, see higher risks of bankruptcy, uh, which would also mean that it would be more difficult for these economies to recover quickly in the aftermath. Unfortunately, there again, you see that it's mainly the southern Eurozone economies that are reliant on small businesses or have a, a large proportion of their economy rely on small business activity. So therefore, it adds to the risk of these economies not, uh, not recovering as quickly. Right. Now, it makes sense that those businesses and households that were in better financial shape going into the crisis stand a better chance of coming through it. 
Are countries in Southern Europe, again, most at risk? If you look at it from the non-financial corporations perspective, then then yes, probably you see that in general, Northern European companies are slightly more robust, have slightly more liquid buffers than uh, than companies in, in Southern Europe do. But at the same time, if you look at it from a household perspective, then there you actually see that it's a little bit the other way around. So there um, you see that households in, in Southern Europe have larger liquid or or semi-liquid buffers than households in, in Northern Europe have. And, and that's something that could be helpful for Southern Europe's consumption in the uh, in the aftermath of this. So it's, it's not just completely a one-way street. It's not that it's uh, that all factors point to uh, Southern Europe performing more poorly in a recovery phase, but we do see that most factors, unfortunately, are pointing in that direction. You know, talking about northern countries, they do face issues of their own, obviously, that put their recoveries at risk. For example, Germany is very dependent on trade, isn't it? Exactly. So there, so there we see that household buffers are somewhat smaller than average in Germany. Um, and we also notice that, indeed, I mean, they're dependent on trade. Um, and of course, we don't really know how this recovery is going to play out from a trade perspective. Uh, but we could imagine a, a scenario which actually is, is definitely not far-fetched, in which trade recovers more slowly than, than average economic growth does. Um, and what that means is that, you know, you can imagine that there are more procedures around global trade, which make it more difficult for it to recover. It could be that some economies that are important in the global supply chain reopen later than others, uh, making it more difficult for the global supply chain to uh, to function as it did prior to the crisis for a longer period of time. Now, these factors could cause trade to remain subdued for, for quite some time. Um, and indeed, countries that rely more on trade or are more integrated into that global value chain are countries that could therefore see more difficulty in, in terms of their recovery. But when you put all of these factors together, who is the most vulnerable? We've created a sort of a vulnerability index where we're we're quite agnostic to uh, which factors are more important than others. So we've we've given them all equal weights and tossed them together. And what we see then is that it's it's mainly Southern European and Central and Eastern European countries that are in the Eurozone that are likely to experience the most difficulty in terms of a prolonged slump. Uh, they're more at risk of a prolonged slump and therefore a slower recovery out of the lockdown crisis that we're currently experiencing. And it's it's interesting because what that more or less means is that we're stuck with the same dichotomy that we had during the euro crisis, which is the core versus periphery countries. And that might rear its head again in the aftermath of this crisis. Um, so the core countries, the Netherlands, Germany, Belgium, Finland, France, are all performing better than average in terms of this index and are therefore likely to experience a somewhat faster than average recovery as the recovery starts unfolding. But what are the implications of a prolonged slump in Southern Europe? And do you think that the recovery fund that's been proposed by the EU could help to smooth out some of these differences? The implications of this are that we'll have to um, start looking at the run-up in debt in Southern Europe more seriously, even though they've actually announced uh, smaller spending packages. The irony of of the story is that GDP is very much part of the debt story, of course, because we measure debt as a percent of GDP. 
Now, if GDP contracts for a longer period of time, a deeper and longer contraction would mean that even if you have smaller spending packages in place, your debt levels could run up more. And you can already see that governments in Southern Europe are concerned about that because even though the ECB has announced a massive package to, to help the economy, I think it's 1,350 billion euros at the moment, you see that the ECB, that that is not enough to entice governments to, uh, to spend. On top of that, the European Commission has already said that it's not necessary to adhere to the budget rules that are in place of 3% of GDP budget deficit maximum in times of this crisis. So essentially, the ECB and the European Commission have said, go spend whatever is necessary and don't worry about the receipt. That's essentially what the message has been. But governments are worried that in the longer term, this is still going to be problematic as their growth patterns have been quite weak and a prolonged slump would mean that debt levels would become higher. And at some point, of course, the ECB is going to stop its emergency spending program and the European Commission is going to want countries to adhere to the debt and deficit rules again. And at that point, these countries are concerned about what that's going to mean for their debt sustainability. So these are our concerns that are very much life at the moment. And we see that the European Recovery Fund that's being discussed could be helpful there. If indeed there would be a fund that would draw from mutualized debt and would help countries and sectors that are most hurt here, then of course that would go quite a long way depending on how large the fund would be in terms of alleviating concerns about a debt run-up. As it would be mutualized, it wouldn't have a an immediate impact on the um, on the debt levels of countries. Um, so it would help from a longer-term debt sustainability perspective. And as we're ultimately fighting a crisis that was started completely outside of the economic realm and not because of economic issues, but because of a health situation, of course, it seems that there is some consensus in Europe, at least, that it's necessary to do something together. What that's going to be, well, that will be decided over the coming weeks and will be a, um, a very tense and difficult discussion as debt mutualization and debt sharing remains one of the big concerns and dividing lines between Eurozone countries at the moment. Sure. Okay, ING's senior Eurozone economist, Bert Kalein, thanks very much. Thank you. This podcast has been prepared by ING solely for information purposes, irrespective of a particular user's means, financial situation, or investment objective. The information does not constitute investment recommendation nor is it investment, legal or tax advice or an offer of solicitation to purchase or sell any financial instrument. Read more at think.ing.com slash content disclaimer.